Hi everyone, welcome back to the Brown History Podcast. My name is Essen and today's guest is the award-winning filmmaker Asif Kapadia. Asif has done everything. He's a writer, director, producer, but he's most known for his documentaries. If you haven't seen them, I highly recommend them. You know, right now there are all these fluffed up true crime docs that just keep popping up every week on Netflix and they're like eight episodes when they could just be 20 minutes. But Asif's documentaries, they're different. They're, they truly change the game. The style, it's very unique. There's no people talking to the camera. It only uses archival footage so that you truly feel immersed in it. It's a spectacular work of art. Uh, you don't need to be a sports fan or a music fan to enjoy them. The stories are just universal. Anyways, that's the intro. Uh, it's 5 in the morning. I'm exhausted. And I can't really talk loud because I have a newborn baby boy who's in the room next to me. And we don't really live in a big place. So... You you don't wanna you don't wanna wake up a baby. You can't negotiate with a two month year old. You don't wanna. I don't wanna wake him up. Please, I'm so tired. Anyways, um, before we get started, I just wanna add in that if you're enjoying this labor of love, this podcast, these conversations, and you wanna help out and you wanna support, do consider being a patron. Just visit brownhistorypodcast.com. Your contribution really goes a long way. Thank you for listening. Let's get this started. Here we go. You you tell me when, you know, time's running out and, and I'll cut it short. No okay, pressure. Cool. You know, this Partly is... it's like jet lag because I got here late last night and I've got a meeting later. So at some point, I think I might, I you know, normally I would stay awake. So I wake up early, fall asleep early, but I've got a meeting at six o'clock, which is quite late when yeah. you've just flown in from London. But um, so I don't want to fall asleep during that. But anyway, we'll see. Uh-huh. Let's work it out. Hopefully, Jetlag will make you answer the questions more honestly and reveal some secrets. Oh, exactly. Some, That's what I'm worried know, about. This is what I want. <laughs> <laughs> I'm such a I'm such a big fan. I I love your work. So usually, I start off with each with each guest. I talk about the the history of them, and I go back mm-hmm. to their parents. And I understand that you were you grew up in Hackney in the 70s and the 80s. Yes. So I wanted to know how your parents ended up there and where 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 were they coming from? So my mother and father are Muslim, but from India. Um, when partition happened, their families stayed in Gujarat. So mm-hmm. it's this weird thing uh, that that they stayed, you know, in India in Gujarat. And my mom is from near Surat, a place called Surat, um, a city called Nosari. And my dad, which is a city, big city, my dad is from, yeah. And my dad is from a place called Billimora, which is a smaller kind of more villagey thing, I would say. Um, I've been to both places. And yeah, one of them definitely feels like it's kind of quite off the beaten track. And Surat is quite, Surat's a big city. And Nosari is even quite a big kind of town if it's not already a city. Um, And so, yeah, it's just a weird thing that most of my friends and family Sorry, most of my friends in London, are, their family are from Pakistan mm-hmm. and, and, and my family are from India. So there's this weird thing that we have so much in common, but I've never been to Pakistan and they have never been to India. And it's just this crazy like, thing that, you know, this line that was drawn. Um, I grew up, uh, so they came over in 1966, my dad to the UK at the time when a lot of people were maybe going to New York or New Jersey or Canada and Toronto. My family came to London. Um, They went to the north of England and they were in Yorkshire first. There was a kind of community of family that was in um, 
West Yorkshire, um, and they were there for a while. So, so the, I'm the youngest of five children. My wow. eldest brother and sister were born in India. Mm-hmm. My middle sister was born in Yorkshire, in the north of England, and then my parents moved down to London. Um, and the youngest two were born, and I'm the youngest of five. So it's an interesting kind of story of how the five children were born slightly differently and how we're all kind of different, whether or not that's because of where we're born. Oh, it's a massive coincidence. I don't know, but it's quite an interesting kind of thing. Um, My dad, um, for about 35 years, was a postman. So in India, he trained as a lawyer, came to the UK, had to find work to start his qualifications, didn't count. So then he he was a postman. My mum, you know, didn't really speak English um, or write English very well. Um, wasn't educated here so um for her was kind of different kind of struggle she was a machinist so growing up my dad was working nights as a postman and my mom um bringing up the kids and cooking and doing everything that to run the house getting us to school and everything and also was making clothes so I kind of went to sleep with the sound of machine right she basically had a she used to go to work with other people and then kind of came home and eventually had like the cellar become a mini factory. And so she would work in the cellar and we'd have the sound of machines all night long kind of putting us to sleep. If, if I'm correct, you grew up in Hackney. Yeah. So then the, when it came to London, um, they came to Hackney, which is northeast London. Um, and they would have been there. I was born in 72, my sister's 70, 71. So would have come in the late 60s, early 70s to London. It was a very, it's a really, it's a super cool area now. Mm-hmm. Everyone, I mean, it's like, it's like what happened to Brooklyn or somewhere like that, where, you know, everyone has moved in, anyone in the media, anyone who's up and coming, any musician wants to live in Hackney, goes to clubs in Hackney. You know, it's the kind of coolest one of the coolest places in London, I'd say it's up there in Europe. I grew up in the 70s when it was cool but poor. Now right. it's cool and rich. And so I grew up there when it was really quite poor and rough and a kind of a bit of a no-go area for most people. Right. My parents would say, whatever you do, you know, don't go there. Because uh, from my understanding, my understanding that the 70s in Hackney was like well, in the late 70s, it was full of racist murders and then protests and the cops were racist and there was a, there was a prophylic okay, murder. So it's interesting. So who have you spoken to um, about, about Hackney already? Uh, I've, this is from books and museums right. and news articles. So, okay, so, so I'll tell you my experience. So I grew up in Stamford Hill and Stoke Newington were the two places that I went to school and lived in. Stamford Hill, they're, very, they're right next to each other, like a mile apart. So in American, Canadian terms, there's nothing, right? In, in England, London terms, London's like a series of villages. It mm-hmm. depends on which little village you grew up in, and that's your area. And then you go like a few miles and you're in another village, and mm-hmm. they happen to all be connected. So Stamford Hill was an interesting place growing up because it was generally Hackney is very multicultural, right? The, the example I normally give to people is out of the class of 30 children, at my secondary school, 30 kids in the class. There were eight kids that were South Asian, and that was Hindus, Sikhs, Muslims, Bangladeshi kids. Less Bangladeshi kids, but they were there. A lot of the Muslim kids were from Gujarat. 
a lot of them were from Bardoli, a particular village where everyone came to Stamford Hill, right? Mm-hmm. Then there were seven or eight kids that were West Indian. So they were Jamaican or Trinidadian or somewhere from the West Indies. A lot of this is obviously all colonial British history. Um, we had a French kid, German kid, we had Italian, we had like, it was just the most multicultural group of kids. And out of 30 kids, there were two kids that you would call white English. Yeah. And that was normal. That was Hackney, right? Out of 30 kids, my teacher was French, our form tutor. So everyone spoke more than one language. Everyone had their own food. Everyone had their own customs. At the beginning, when we started, people would, the teacher would call out the register, the names, and people would laugh at everyone's funny names. But by the end of school, like we all knew something about everyone and everyone had a history and a culture. That was just normal in Hackney in those days. As I carried on through life, in my kind of work, in education, in going to university, doing an undergraduate, postgraduate working, then I realised I was a minority. But in Hackney, you, you were not a minority. Right? Everyone was like from somewhere. So it was it was an interesting kind of beautiful time because of that. The bus that we would catch to school was just like languages and voices and different colours and everything. So going back to Stamford Hill, it was an interesting place because there was literally a road called Kaysenough Road. And my dad in the 70s was one of the guys who kind of started up a big mosque, a small mosque, which is now still going, which is a big mosque wow, now. Wow, that's amazing. Kaysenough Road. But on that same road was a big synagogue. Mm-hmm. So you had Hasidic Jews, right? It was a really kind of interesting place because you had Hasidic Jews who kind of wear the clothes and hat right on the same street as a mosque and Muslims. So we grew up with this kind of interesting kind of, there wasn't much mixing. There was sometimes tension, but also we coexisted in London and it was kind of normal. It was just normal. So that was Stamford Hill. Then my family moved to um, Stoke Newington and I grew up in Stoke Newington which is a slightly different place, more kind of at the time Turkish. A lot of my friends growing up were Turkish, Greek. Um, it later on became a big Kurdish centre. So it's just like constantly changing and, and different shops in the high street. And it was just like, I would say, one of the most beautiful kind of places to be and to grow up. A lot of issues with police force. There was a big police station kind of across the road from my house. A lot of people died in custody. A lot mm. of racism from the police. A lot of this all leads back to Margaret Thatcher, who brought in a lot of laws which were against kind of black people, stop and search laws, um, looking for drugs. But the police were planting drugs. They were all later found to be pro- and prosecuted. They, a lot of people died in custody. It was basically one of the most corrupt police forces in a lot of corruption within the police force in England at the time. Yeah. Um, and also the Margaret Thatcher thing is important because the, one of the key things growing up for me in Hackney was there was a lots of kind of old Victorian hospitals. And there's one particular hospital, which was for people who were mentally unstable. And Margaret Thatcher brought in a law, which was called care in the community. What that meant was just shut down all the hospitals and throw everyone on the street. So for me, going to school every day with my friends meant dodging the people that were really quite unwell. People would come at us with hammers, screwdrivers we'd be like every single day just surviving the trip to school and surviving the trip home was like a big deal every day we were just like how how do we not get attacked today and it was just mad because when we grew up in those days we never would talk to our parents about it we never told anyone no one knew anything you just kept it in i've got teenage kids now the idea that something like that would happen where someone came at them with a screwdriver or a hammer on the way to school 
and they wouldn't tell us would be crazy but we were like we just have to manage this and survive did that did that fear impact you still do you do you think or there's another big it? thing that happened in that in that school was that um, because it was kind of a poor area they they they, they combined two schools so there were like 2000 boys it was a boys school my secondary school this is from 11 to 16 they joined two boys together they didn't have any money it what didn't have the space it was just dangerous um place like there were attacks there were kind of teachers were attacked there was rapes there was a school shooting at mm-hmm. my school you know one of the teachers killed people so my first experience of going to a funeral was of one of the kids so it was a like nobody knows That's about this crazy. it was not reported it was not reported i could ask people now i could tell ask my own family recently none of them remember can you imagine having a school shooting and like your own family because it wasn't talked about it was just like shit happened and we just had to get on with it was was this like so, a south asian thing where nobody talks or is this uh was this a british thing where everyone keeps quiet it's a bit of everything yeah south asian thing it's a british thing it's a class thing it's a poor people it wasn't news in those days right if that happened in hackney now everyone would know about it but at the time and it's also pre-digital like right now if you had to find a story about something that happened in a, a local newspaper in the early 80s or mid 80s it's not online so you'd have to go to the library to find it if there's any libraries left you know mm-hmm. so all of this was a really big part of growing up it was a it was we, it was poor it was tough it was rough and it became like okay surviving how are you going to survive if you a lot of people were very tough and would fight and i wasn't particularly tough so then you had to have a mouth and my thing was i had a mouth and i was like that's how i can somehow sense of humor and the mouth is going to be the way that i think i can get by so and living I, off your wits because i wasn't even one of the cleverest people but it's just like i had common sense i felt i could kind of just gauge what was going on and be aware of danger or get myself generally out of trouble but it's really interesting because you're you're coming from an environment that's holding you down. It's it's there's there's no money. You're broke. It's dangerous. It's racist. And somehow you took this big courageous step into filmmaking. And I'm curious to know number one, how did filmmaking come to you? Two, um, you know, when you're from a family that's very poor and trying to make ends meet, going up to them and telling them you're going to be a filmmaker is probably you know suicidal. How did your family take? the the news that you wanted to do something that i had a very high risk of not making money so i mean it's a big leap isn't it i'll say that so number one you know obviously at the time we were not considering ourselves poor we were like we were fine we had food we had clothes we had everything you know it's one of those things that my parents worked really hard so i wouldn't ever want it to seem like it was tough in that way but it was also kind of normal existence of i am one of those children who were at school you know we had free school dinners because we'd get a ticket and you get school dinners we had help with our school clothes and our school uniform to go to college I got a grant and the reason I could go to college was because I got a grant in order to go to college when I went to university in that period of time you could get a grant to go to the university and have your fees paid and mm-hmm. then when I did my postgraduate at the Royal College of Art I got a bursary so I was able to go through education because I was able to get money from the tax system, the wow. system that was in place at the time helped people like me go into education and study. That has changed. People like me now, it would be very hard for me to have gone to study at film school. Um, the, the other thing was my parents were like, 
traditional and they were practicing and as they got older they probably became more religious and that may well have been peer pressure from some of my older siblings to be honest because they were religious the two born in india are religious the two born in india had arranged marriages and had children and everything and then the marriages didn't work my middle sister's gay my younger sister was married to a black guy and had children and they broke up and she became she was a single mother i'm married to an english girl we have kids and i ended up in film and my so we've got this kind of range across yeah. our family and when we were growing up our family were basically like doing stuff that other families were not doing tradition or so they thought that you know they thought their kids weren't so we were like my mum would get a lot of flack from people all over the country saying oh look at them they're the bad influence that's why you want to go out and go to parties because the Kapadias, you know look at how awful. yeah so we had this reputation sadly but for whatever reason, we were like kind of groundbreaking is what I would say. My parents let us be who we wanted to be. They were mm-hmm. not like, there wasn't kind of any like issues really. My sisters would have had it harder than I did to go out, my middle sister particularly, to go out and go clubbing and stuff like that. And kind of, you know, there was a moment I can remember when I was younger, there was a kind of tension. By the time they get to number five, parenting is like, you just don't get in trouble with your police, you know, just just do what you want to do. And I didn't really ask anyone that. I didn't get permission to go into filmmaking i um wow. i just like started working on films and just did it and, yes. and worked my way up um and every now and again there'd be like a film shoot and i'd be like we're gonna shoot a film can we leave the equipment and it'd be like a truck worth of stuff in the living room and my friends would be sleeping on the floor and my parents would be okay and just cook for everyone my mum would cook food for for the shoot and people honestly would come and work on my films for the food and that was fine because <laughs> the catering for my mom was like the best food. So she did quite a lot of catering for my short films. And when I did commercials at the beginning, she'd do the food for the camera. And, you know, people would just say, I'm only here for the food. I'm like, I don't care. That's so funny. So that sort of kind of, it began with me just like by chance being asked to help out on a short film. At the time I was studying graphic design. I knew I wanted to do something creative. I knew that I didn't want to sit exams anymore and that I had to kind of, find my own thing something that I enjoyed and also I have to say growing up in that area much as I love it and much as it will always be kind of the thing that made me I also knew I had to get out in order Mm -hmm. to be someone so I had to leave and I had to go off to college and I went to Wales for two years and I went and lived in other places my parents then split up and sold the house so our connection to Hackney kind of changed when my parents sold the house because I could never, as a student, have afforded to then move back. The place had been sort of like regenerated and become so expensive that I've never been able to go back to the place that I kind of grew up in. Did you did you have a plan? Did you know what kind of films you wanted to make or, or commercials or music videos? Or did you just take it day by day? I... I, I it was much more a kind of learning on the job. I knew that I loved being on location. I knew that I loved being on set. And I knew that that thing of having kind of my brain, I could solve problems. Like people would panic on, on film shoots and they were much older than me, more experienced. And I would just look at it and it's kind of obvious. If you just do that, then you could kind of fix the issue. And mm-hmm. they'd go, that's a good idea. And then they'd do it. And then they'd just like, I'm not a panicker. I'm quite, quite calm. And actually, I, find, I think I got lucky. I feel calmer when I'm making a film or on, in production or on set when my brain's operating at like 80, 90% to normally my life, like I'm operating at 50, 60%. 
and I might get more stressed about silly things. And there was just something about finding the right thing that you can solve problems. And by doing that, people wanted me to work on their films. And then one person would see me on their short film and they'd say, I'm shooting a film next week. This one's on film, 16 millimeter. Can you come and just help out? I go, sure. And they'd feed me and they'd give me a train ticket to wherever. And, and I realized from very young, the thing that I wanted was, I didn't really care about, I didn't know about filmmaking yet, but I did know as I wanted to travel. And I do go back to being on the bus in Hackney or going to school and everyone being from somewhere made me aware of there's a big world out there. And my family didn't go back to India growing up. We didn't really go on holiday anywhere. We, you know, our generation didn't do that. We went to like the seaside occasionally. And actually when we left London, that's when we came across not like, like racists and National Front people. In Hackney, there was, I don't recall there being much racism where I grew up. It's when I left London. I became very aware of standing out. So we didn't really leave London much. We went to our family's houses around the country. But filmmaking was my way to see the UK. And then as it developed and as I became more successful, see the world. Like right. To be going to places that I would never have got to were it not for a fact that I was shooting something there or working on a film there or a commercial. Well, it's interesting you said that because your first one of your first short films was in India. You know, you just went there yeah. and you filmed a short film there. And not only that, but if I were to look at your resume, it's it's so fascinating because it's all over the place. Different, you know, yeah. there's documentaries, movies, uh, there's a dance documentary, and then there's movies in India and different yeah, areas. Yeah, stuff it's in wild. Argentina, Argentina, Brazil, the US, the North Pole, the Himalayas, Italy. You yes. know, I, I wrote something in Japan. I still want to shoot a film in Japan um is this your way of stuff in north africa yeah it is it's like um it is one of the best things about cinema and filmmaking generally is it is a way to kind of meet people and i like being i'm you know this is one of the things that runs in common in my work is i would always say like my films are one of my tutors saw this at film school she said she looked at my short film she said they're all about outsiders and nobody had ever said it out loud before and i was like hmm Maybe I'm right. Yeah. It's like an outsider taken on the system. And then I became aware of it. And I realized, yeah, all of them in some way or form are about that. That's my theme that runs through all of the work, whether it's a drama, a doc, whatever. You're kind of fighting a corrupt system or a system that's going to try and take you down. Um, and I suppose one of the things, oh, you're, you're breaking up. Is it yeah. picture okay? Yeah. Is there... So the, the thing that I love is I do love traveling. I do love meeting people. I do love challenging myself. I always knew growing up that the UK, I mean, I never felt particularly British. I'm a Londoner. I'm a North Londoner. I'm a Hackney boy. You know, that's me. And I feel European and I'm from the Asia and I'm Indian and I love the US and I love working in Asia and Latin America, but I never would say, like, Oh, I've got to be a British filmmaker because when I went to the rest of Britain, it wasn't, it didn't kind of make me think, Oh, I've got to make stories about this. So I like living there. And then I love being halfway between the, the US and India. And I always worked between those. I worked in Europe, I worked in India, and I worked in, um, I worked in the US. And India, I only went there when I was like 21, 22 for the first time with my mum. And I just saw a little bit of it. And my cousins over there were like, oh, no, no, you know, it's not safe for you to go out, you know. So they'd send a little five-year-old to look after me or something, you know, mm -hmm. when we went out. And, and I just saw enough to think I have to come back here. I think it's visually amazing. It's stunning. 
I went back. Uh, by then, I had made quite a few short films. I should kind of clarify that. I'd made lots of short films, but my graduate film at film school at the Royal College of Art was going to be for my, my brain. It was my final short film. And that was the film I decided to shoot in India because I liked magical realism and I liked the idea of stories having something otherworldly. And I suppose, I don't know if that's growing up with kind of religion or faith or spirituality, but also loving world cinema, where it's Japanese cinema or Latin American cinema and literature or Salman Rushdie or just books that kind of is something else going on. Right. So I just thought if I, I wrote the script and I thought if I shoot that in Wales or in Ireland or in Scotland, it won't work. But if I do it in India, people will buy it. So that was the idea. So then I was always like every film for me should be pushing yourself into somewhere unknown and impossible. So every short film, every feature film is like, I don't know how the hell I'm going to do this, yeah. but I'm going to give it a go. And so my graduate film, The Sheep Thief, was a big one because the film school didn't want me to do it. The crew, a lot of them were not up for it. We had to raise the money ourselves. Um, I had to take the film crew kit equipment and we built equipment in India. You know, it was just this mad, mad experience. We all went a bit mad. Nobody really, the film school really didn't like the film, but the film went on to become successful. It won a prize at Cannes. It won lots yeah. of awards around the world. And that's how I got The Warrior with yes. Irfan Khan as my first feature off the back of this short film because it was quite an epic short film. And so it was interesting by challenging myself with a short, I managed to get the step that would lead me to make my first feature. The Warrior was uh, shot in India. Uh, it stars Irfan Khan. Um, it, it, if I were to look at the the stills and the poster and the storyline, I would think it's a it's an Indian movie, but it was actually it's an actually considered a British film, and I think it was selected as uh, as a British's uh, a British submitted it as their selection for the best foreign film at the Oscars. I think, right? Yeah, correct. Yeah. So, so there's a really a bunch of things there. Um, I don't know if you've seen it. If you haven't, I'll send you a copy. I haven't seen it. I'll send you. I'll send you a link to it. Um, the, the the thing that's interesting about it is this is kind of I, I, my film school. The idea of making a film abroad, no one had ever done before. And I'm like, I'm going to go and shoot a film in India with street kids. And they were like, You're crazy. There's no way we're going to let you do it. Oh no, no, my family are really well known in India. They know everyone, and they trust that was that like bullshit. They trusted me. We were like, okay, you, you know. And how would they know? And then mm -hmm. when it came to the Warrior, everyone, even my agent at the time, was like, you know, this is your third film. There's no way. Someone's going to let you make this as a first film. So I wrote a film in Hackney. I wrote my version of Do the Right Thing. And it just wasn't as original. It just wasn't as good. And everyone's like, okay, this script is really good. And I managed to raise the money and went off and shot the film in India. And it was like, at the time, I don't think any British film had been made, not in English, mm -hmm. you know, with no British actors. Normally, it would have been a white person going to India and it's their story. And I'm like, no, yeah. there's not going to be any white people in this. It's all going to be Asian people. It's going to be my Western. I'm going to find an actor and it's going to be, there's hardly any dialogue in the screenplay. Like there's seven minutes of dialogue in a 90 minute feature. And I'm going to find a great actor. That's going to be my kind of Mifune or my Clint Eastwood. And, and then I found Irfan, you know? And so it, now it's become a common thing for people to do films, not in English from the UK. But yes. at the time, no one had really done it before. So for me, I'm like always trying to just push, like what is the barrier that I can break? Senna was the next one. Like after a few films, I made a few other dramas, but that was the one where like everyone's like, you can't make documentaries. Like, now you're going to bloody interview someone. And I'd never made a documentary before. I'm like, I think there's a much more interesting cinematic way to make this film with no interviews. So it feels like a movie. 
Yes. And everyone was against it. Every producer, all of the money, the execs, everyone. And I'm like, I had to fight them. Um, but then the film kind of became like it changed documentaries. It changed um, the game. So for me, completely. that's like, yeah, it changed the game. So for me, that's like, I don't know what it is, but I'm like, every film, I'm like, I'm thinking always like, what can I do that challenges me? But I also can see, because I now have a kind of knowledge of film and cinema and kind of cinema, what other people have done, I kind of watch them and I go, that's not affecting me the way everyone else seems to be affected. And then I see a film from China or from Japan, or I see some Korean film and I'm going, that's great. And so I always felt like world cinema was the stuff that motivated and inspired me. And I always felt I had more in common with that, even though I'm from England, everyone's obsessed with making films that appeal to the US because of the mm -hmm. language. This is all pre-streamers, remember? I existed in a world that was pre-Netflix and Apple and Amazon and everyone. Right. This was like, it was much harder in a way. It was a much smaller market. But I'm like, I'd rather take that battle and make something that in the long term may find its place and be something special. Senna was not particularly successful when it first came out. And now everyone really? loves it. it yeah, it was, it was. It's amazing. Uh, it was a I, fight to get it made. It was a fight to get it out and released. Totally. How, how did, well, since we're talking about Senna, how did Senna come to you? Uh, from what I read that you had no idea who he was. You were not a F1 fan. Uh, you never done a documentary before. So how did Sonic come to you? And I heard that it took you five years to make. And, yeah. um, you know, it, it really changed documentaries. And I wanted to know how that process... Well, I'll ask you this question after this question. So so, so I'm, I'm, I love movies and I love cinema and I love world cinema, but I've always loved sport. And a lot of people, I remember when I was kind of first getting into movies, it's like, if you like cinema, you can't like football. And I'm like, I like football. And I like cinema and I don't see like the problem with like loving sport. My, my, my dad's influence growing up, there were a few things which I realized now how big a deal they were. Muhammad Ali was like mm -hmm. one of his heroes. I remember him sitting us down and making us watch Gandhi and he loved the Godfather. And there are three things that you kind of grow up and go, oh my God, he had taste. And my mum had like really great sort of taste as well in music and stuff. So there's something about sport that my family just grew up watching everything and loving it. So, and I grew up watching and playing football and still play football and rubbish soccer, right? Football, not good at it, but I still play every Tuesday. And so for me, the idea of making something which was about a sports person, for me, wasn't a big leap. The challenge was, I mean, at the beginning, it was just like, okay, fine. I like to do something different. I'll do this. It'll be a one-off. I'll do a doc. It'll be a studio film. It was Universal Pictures. It was working title studios who were like one of the biggest studios in Europe. And I'll be like, fine, I'll do it. I'll move on. I did know who Senna was. I just wasn't a Formula One nut, right? Mm -hmm. But I grew up watching everything. So I remember that period. Um, and then as I started working on it, it's a funny thing that I've learned through filmmaking over the years, over the decades now, because I'm now 50 and I started working on films when I was 17. And, you know, things go wrong when you're trying to make a film. And sometimes that's the best thing ever for the film. Sometimes, you know, the, the thing that you had planned doesn't happen, something else happens. So with Senna, what happened was we I finished the movie. I did this film with Michelle Yeoh um, called Far North in the Arctic. Um, I hope Michelle wins an Oscar this year. Um, she's amazing and wonderful. So um, while I finished that, I, I got a call from a producer who I knew, and he said, look, we're thinking about making this film about Ayrton Senna. Would you be interested? And I was like, yeah, actually, it might, you know, let me come in for a meeting. Let's see. And it was very much I was a hired director. Eventually, we talked about it. We met. And I was like, okay, I'll do it. And he's like, right, we're, 
after I literally made another movie and then I came back and I said, we're ready to go into production. Like, Fantastic. So we got an edit suite and I just started working with a writer called Manish Pandey and I started doing my research. From the day that we started, it took nine more months for the deal to get done wow. with the Senna family, Universal, Working Title, Bernie Ecclestone, Formula One, the producers and everyone. And I'm somewhere down like in 15th position, right? So for nine months, I couldn't hire anyone. I wasn't getting paid. And I turned down other jobs. So I'm now making this thing for three for free. And it's really frustrating because it may never happen. But what I did do is I spent nine months studying my character, watching all of the footage off YouTube and just looking at him and myself and my kind of assistant editor just starting to play with ripping stuff for free off YouTube and cutting it. YouTube. And that's when I was just, yeah, just no, YouTube. No museum archives, no home all videos. Of, we had no access to anything. All archives. this shit was out there already wow. on the internet, but nobody knew it had any value. And so I'm looking at it going, I think this is the best set of dailies I've ever seen. I mean, it's an amazing movie. In the, I can feel it in my bones. There's an amazing middle, which is his rivalry. There's a really powerful ending. It's going to mm -hmm. be really emotional that final weekend. And I don't know where it begins, but we'll work that out. And I kept thinking of it. And my, my references are always movies. My reference was the Senna was Raging Bull. I love Scorsese. And I'm thinking, okay, he had, I don't know, 150 fights, right? Jake LaMotta. But he only showed about seven or eight. And mm -hmm. each one was a world title fight or a key fight. That not only was it every fight has a different look, but every fight has to move the story on. The character and the drama moves on. So that's how I started to think about Senna was if it was like rageable. How do you only pick certain races and each one is a key moment in the character's development? And how do you take it from being about five drivers to two drivers and make it a boxing match? And make it simple that anyone can understand. So there's nothing to do with engines and technology and tires, any of that bullshit. Get rid of all of it. It's a blue car and a red car. Red car, good. Blue car, bad. Anyone can understand that. And it was like, yeah. that was the idea. So I worked with a writer. We were like, let's simplify this to the bare essentials and just show, don't tell. And so that process, I did something on Senna that I hadn't done previously on my dramas, where I was always very protective of my films. And once they were ready, I'd screen it. And often it was too late. We'd kind of spent all the money. With Senna, to prove, prove my concept of not having interviews, I kept screening it and showing it. And we had, we'd invite people and it looked like shit. It was a bunch of YouTube clips with like time code and everything yeah. on a cinema screen. And everyone thought, this guy's crazy. He's going to get fired. And then they'd start watching it. And it doesn't matter the quality of the footage if it's emotionally powerful. Even though it looked like shit, everyone was crying. And wow. that's when you know you've got something. So the first cut I showed was like five hours long at the cinema. And then from five hours, we did a four-hour cut and then a three-hour cut. And it went on for years. And, and by then, I was getting paid, but, you know, the money ran out. I got paid hardly anything for that film. But I knew I had something really, really special. My wife was saying, just quit, go and make a proper movie, go and do a mo drama. This is like a waste of your time. And I kept saying, if I leave, they'll screw it up. I know yeah. they'll put interviews in it. I knew they were trying. Whenever I'd go to Buenos Aires, so, yeah, yeah, whenever I'd go to, um, sorry, Sao Paulo to do an interview, I'd come back and it, the producers had put some interviews in and I'd be like, take them out. Just, you're ruining this film. So I had to compromise on certain things, but I had certain line that I'm like, I'm not going to compromise. There's going to be no talking heads in this film. 
I'm going to fight you to the end on this. And the one kind of key producer, um, Eric Fellner, trusted me on that. And then the producers came on board and everyone got on board. And once we started screening it, everyone loved it. You'd be amazed how many, you know, success as many fathers and, you know, failure is an orphan. And this film has many fathers, I could tell you now. But it was a battle. After Sana, you discovered the the formula. You you found this way of telling a documentary, the story, and it's and it's amazing. But there's also kind of a, a you're you're held back a bit because the next documentary you made was Amy, and and for you to make the documentary that you make, the style that you make, you need to have a lot of archive footage. So yeah. do you before you did Amy and you did Maradona? Did you go and check out all the archives and see I have enough archives to tell the story that I want to or was there a weakness where you're like, you know what, maybe if I could just have one guy talking to the camera and interview, you know, like a talking head and kind of fill that gap in? Because it's very, because it must prevent you from doing documentaries about, I don't know, partition or whatever topics you want to do because of the lack of archive footage. No, it's a really, really good question. And and so having done the first one, which was like this fight, and remember, I've got to tell you, I had no idea that footage existed. I just had an instinct that we could do it in a certain way. And what we would do is we're sort of editing, interviewing, researching all at the same time. So if there's something important that comes out of an interview, then I've got to figure out a way to show it. And if I can't show it, but then I realize there's some other footage which fulfills the same story beat, we rewrite the script in a way. So the thing that's in all of the books that everyone talks about, whether it's about Senna, Maradona or, or Amy, someone wrote something in a book and the next writer will copy that and the next writer will copy that to the point that everyone who reads his books, well, that's the most important thing in their life. And then I would do the research and say, actually, yeah, it's a good story, but I can show you this, which I think is the same emotional beat, but more interesting because it's visually told and not someone recounting a story. So that's what happens is like having come from a background of drama and writing screenplays, we sort of write the documentaries as screenplays through archive. With Amy, I had no idea any footage existed. I knew there was a lot of material of her and a lot of material of her looking bad. What we had no idea is whether or not we could make her look good. We didn't know what existed before. Mm-hmm. But that became like an instinct of not wanting to do another sport film after Senna, getting offered a lot, turning them all down. And then this one came along. And it, there's a, the film that I made in between Senna and Amy, I did a film for the London Olympics. Um, about Hackney, about East London, about what's happening to the area as it all gets torn down and an Olympic stadium gets built and regenerated and what happens to the local people. So that was like a commission that I did. And that was the first film in many, many years which I'd made in London. And something kind of went off in my brain thinking, actually, it's nice to kind of come home and make a film about where I'm from. So then when I got a call about Amy from my producer at the time, James Gay Reese. Again, there was like a little moment of, right, maybe this is the London story that I've been sort of secretly wanting to do. Having lived in and around Camden for about 10 years, I, I lived in Kentish Town, which is nearby, um, and, and in Primrose Hill. And I walked through Camden every day into town, into Soho on the way out. I didn't know Amy. I never saw her live. But I felt like she could have been someone who grew up down the street from me. Mm-hmm. And I thought, okay, she's a really, I spoke to my wife. She's like, you've got to do it. She's an amazing person. She's so influential. So I was like, she was saying, do it. And then I listened to her music and I was like, okay, there's something quite powerful in the music. But the big thing was, as she was, when she was alive, I'd see people around her on TV, on the radio, in newspapers all the time. 
And I kept thinking, why are you on the radio? Why are you looking after her? Like, I think there was this question mark, like, why is no one caring about her? Why are you talking, like, self-promoting yourself, like members of her family or whatever? So that question became the thing that I wanted to answer with the film. Why is no one looking after her? How could somebody in this day and age die at age of 27 in front of our eyes and no one care? Mm-hmm. So it was like almost like investigating a crime. Yeah. So that's what happened with that film. It was like, I'm going to investigate this. I'm going to do it with archive because I wasn't there. I never met anyone. I wasn't, no, I didn't know Amy. So I'm going to just piece it together, connect the dots and present the evidence and let the audience make up their minds. Right. So making it with archive helped me in this case. Number one, like Senna, I didn't have Senna. I didn't have Amy to interview. So I was relying on lots of kind of counter comments and interviews and arguments. And I was going to give you them and piece it together. And one person I spoke to, Nick Shemansky, her first manager, was a key person who trusted me, who really liked Senna, and who kind of, I didn't realize at the time, had home videos. And the home videos were key. And then he opened up the relationship to her two best friends when she was young. And it's through trust and me talking to them and them saying you're just going to exploit her you're going to be like all those other people exploited her. and i'm like i'm really i'm not trying to do that i'm going to try and reveal the truth but i can only reveal the truth if you tell me the truth and then i have to find a way as a filmmaker to show right. it and so they put a lot of trust in me there's a lot of kind of baggage and weight on my shoulders yeah. and that film more than anything was just therapy it was like everyone that came in would cry and let everything off their chest and i would do those interviews in the dark most of the time I had a sound studio where I would record the interviews and I don't bring a camera. Once there was one person who trusted me, which was Nick Shemansky, Amy's first manager, that opened the door. He brought along some home videos that he'd shot on kind of mini DV or something. Um, And then I saw that material and I thought, okay, there's something great here. I can show her before she had the issues of addiction you know, to show the contrast of who she was before fame and after fame. And then he also trusted me and he became a friend. And he said, look, there's two people you have to meet, Julia and Lauren, her best friends when she was young. And they've never given an interview. They've never spoken to anyone. They promised they'd never talk to anyone, but you have to talk to them. And so my mission became to get Nick, Julia and Lauren to talk to me, to understand who, who she was. And everyone around Amy has written a book, made it a TV show, sold their stories to newspapers. These people no one's ever heard of because they've never spoken to anyone. So I had to kind of get them to open up. And the only way I could do the film was if they trusted me. So, so much of being a kind of documentary director, much more than drama directing, is trust and relationships and over a long period of time and not just saying, just sign here and we own everything. Mm-hmm. In fact, with Amy, I would say to them, don't sign anything. Talk to me, tell me what happened. If you don't trust me or if you don't think I've done a good film or if you don't think the film is honest, don't sign a release. I can't use your footage. I can't use your interview. So I'm putting the pressure on me to deliver at the end. And yeah. generally everyone always signs. Um, so that was a really difficult one because that became very much like therapy because Amy had been dead less than a year when we yeah. started making that film. Yeah. And so what's interesting is I even thought it's too soon. But when I started working on it, I thought what's interesting about this is compared to Senna, 15 years had passed since he had died. People had sort of moved on. With Amy, all of the people that were relevant were still in the same jobs. They yeah. can't pretend to say, oh, I was younger then. I said, no, actually, you got a promotion because of the way you treated her. So I felt like I had to make it quickly because it was about 
London and it was about now and it's about culture and pop culture and the media and all of this stuff and bullying. This is long before Me Too, right? Mm -hmm. That film was made about how a young woman is treated by people um, and how they would treat a guy very differently. So that project, the people that would come in for interviews, I did the interviews with Juliet and Lauren in the dark. I turned the lights off and, and it was like radio. And they felt more comfortable not having a camera and lighting and a crew and other men around. It would just be me and them in a room, the sound recorders is somewhere else, and, it, and they could just talk and get it off their chest. And then maybe from a five-hour interview, I'd use like two minutes, if that, two or three lines. But to get those two or three lines, you have to go through a long kind of journey. Right. Um, that documentary was very, very successful. It won uh, Best Documentary at the Oscars. How did that success feel? It was, it was, it was great. I mean, it's really funny, you know. That film had a, had a long journey because it, it started at the Cannes Film Festival, so it premiered in Cannes and a big Grand Palais in the south of France. And it's just like, you know, as a person who loves world cinema and European cinema, Cannes or Venice, they honestly they were the kind of dreams for me growing up. And I have to say, because I don't come from the US and I don't live in LA. It wasn't so much the Oscars. So AIM is an interesting one where it started off with the screening at Cannes Film Festival, which people now still tell me you were there. It was like one of the most amazing or, or, or kind of so emotional, that screening with two or three thousand people in the cinema. Mm -hmm. That was in May 2015. It came out. It, it was a big hit around the world, actually. And then the following year, we were at the BAFTAs, the Grammys, Cannes, uh, sorry, and, and, and the Oscars. And, and it did win. And I have to be honest, by the time you get to that, you're kind of exhausted by it all. It is a great thing. Yeah. But at the time, I realized that it became more about that effort of dressing up, putting on uncomfortable shoes and, and a shirt and a tie and going to an event. And it all becomes political. I have to say, the process of award season, it starts off being about the movie. And by the end, it's all about your speech. And that person just said a really good speech where they brought something into it. And you've got to now balance your speech. And I'm like, I'm just like, they're making a film about some genocide that happened somewhere. And I'm making a film about a pop singer. So sometimes you just think, I don't know how to compete. It was a very weird thing. It was great. Mm -hmm. But also the nature of award season, it goes on for six months, is it kind of makes the filmmaker start competing, which yeah. I don't really like. And, and it becomes less and less about the film, like I said, more and more about the photo ops and more and more about sound bites and more and more about speeches, which are scripted, if you know anything about awards, right? Everyone that goes up there and gives this amazing speech at awards, someone wrote it for them. You know, it's all kind of manufactured. So I got quite exhausted by it all by the end. It's mm -hmm. great. I'm really proud. I'm really happy. I've, I feel like Senna... Many people would say Senna's a better film. I might think Senna's a better film. Senna didn't even get longlisted. So it's one of those things with awards that I'm always a bit like, it's great, I can't complain. But I've made films that I'm really proud of that won nothing. And I've made other films that did really well. And I put as much effort in them all. And it's like, it's a nice problem to have, you know, to, to have been at the Oscars and been up on stage was great. Did you go back to Hackney and, and those families that said, don't be like the Kapadias? Did you tell them, look, where, look at me now? <laughs> did That's your parents a, I, I would never do that no but it's a really yeah no it's a really interesting story that um well let's see sadly my mum had died before Amy came out so um while we were making it my mum died so that was um oh, one sorry, of the yeah. things is that you know your mum's not around to see it 
Mm-hmm. Um, and it was one of those things that we've not, we're still like, we don't kind of like big oh. celebration thing. But I did go to my sisters and my nephews and nieces were all there. And it's like all these pictures that are really young. It's all quite sweet. What did happen subsequently after I made feature films and after I made The Warrior was that cousins, that, that the family members who would come around to our house and say, it's against your religion to be making films. And why have you got pictures on your wall, Asif? And this is terrible. You're a bad Muslim and all that. Yeah. Later on, their kids grow up and their kids want to be actors. And they're ringing me saying, can you give my son a role? He really wants to be an actor. So... You know, there was a big change of people who wanted to go to people, cousins of mine who wrote novels, people who wanted to become actors, people who went into the arts. It was never really done before right. or it was suppressed. And then it became a legitimate thing for people to do. And so I feel like we did our little bit within the family and the community to say, look, we can do this. We're still good people, you know, and and but we this is the kind of universe that we found to express ourselves and i think people have kind of generally respected that how did your mom uh take in your success because i mean i know she passed away during amy but she also saw the success of the warrior senna and all these other yeah. movies you've done that must have been a very like a proud moment you yeah went from... she came to screenings yeah it was nice yeah. that she came to my graduation screening and she came to she came to see the warrior and you know when the warrior won a prize at the london film films festival it won this really amazing prize called the sutherland award and then i took it home to my mum. said and irfan came khan came to my mum's house and we all had dinner she made a biryani for us and no it was nice it was great i don't know if anyone really understood what the hell it is i do still you mm-hmm. know or how hard it is to do them you know, I, I don't know if I ever talked about it enough or expressed it when I had the chance or when I should have to my parents. Um, but I know they were proud. I know they were proud. You know, you know how it is. People are proud because someone reads something then in a newspaper in Gujarat. Right. Yeah, yeah, and yeah. they send a clipping to my parents. So my parents feel good because they know that I've done something or yeah. won something. I know. I'll give you a good example of something that happened in India, which is quite funny. When we first made The Warrior, I went to India to screen it for the cast and a crew and we were very fun it was back back in 2001 and we invited a load of indian journalists and not one of them liked the film like they were all like what the hell is this like you're british why are you trying to make a film in india in hindi mm-hmm. you know what do you think you're doing you're not even from here and and so it was a totally like you've done this is the weirdest film there's no songs there's no action you know irfan is he he was not considered a movie star at the time. He no. was like a TV actor. He was going to quit acting. The Warrior was like the film that kind of made him love acting and doing cinema and got him known in America. Then the film did well and got, like you said, shortlisted for the Oscars and won awards in England and won BAFTA awards. It won Best British Film, a film not in English with no British actors, shot entirely in India, in Hindi, won the BAFTA for Best British Film, which is kind of a big deal. It was a huge um, deal. You know, back in 2002, about 20 years ago. Yeah. And um, suddenly then all the Indian press were like, Indian film wins award. <laughs> and they were like, once it's successful, they were like totally proud of it. But the first time round, they all just thought, what the hell is this? This is useless, you know. So it's that funny thing of, again, success. People become kind of proud of it. After, after uh, Amy, you're like on top now. Everyone knows who you are. Everyone's expecting, like, what's he going to do next? And you made a documentary on uh, Diego Maradona, which was a phenomenal documentary. How did Diego Maradona 
uh, that subject come to you because it's different in the sense that a he was still alive at the time, and that must really change the whole formula for you. And and b did you again look at the archive footage because there must be a lot of archive footage, but did yeah. you you know analyze the archive footage? And I feel like the archive even if you did look at the archive footage, it could easily change because Maradona was still alive and he could do something. You know, you can make a yeah. document, a story about Maradona being a a bad, uh, I don't know, a religious person, and all of a sudden, when the movie comes out, there's an yeah. article that says Maradona is an atheist. Denounces God. Yeah, and it just. <laughs> I mean, kinda... that, that you're totally right. He, that was him. He every I met a lot of journalists and a lot of people who'd written books about him. And the minute they press send to the publisher, he'd do something, or he'd go and play for another team, or go to another country, and they're like, "My book's already out of date." So I was very aware that he is chaos. And he is yeah. trouble and he will never do what he's told. And it was kind of the reason to do the film. It was like, mm-hmm. okay, if I do a third one and it's going to become privately like a part of a trilogy, I'm going to do it because it's different. You know, the rule of thirds, like in story, you do something once, you do it twice, and the third one's a twist. And so the, the twist was, okay, I don't want to just be known as a guy that, that makes films about people who are dead, yeah. tragically died young. So I'm like, okay, number one, he's alive. Number two, I can meet him. Number three, I know he's difficult, so it's going to be a real challenge. But I love football, and he was like a pl- big player growing up. I-, I was aware of him. And generally, my films are about kind of anti-heroes. Remember I said at the beginning about outsiders? Amy was not loved before I made the film. Generally, people thought, oh, she's like, in America, they were like, she's a train wreck. She was in a England, oh, she's, a, she's a problem. She's drunk. She's an addict. Who cares? She's an idiot. So it was like, I like having that thing to fight against. Senna was not loved universally before I made that film. People thought he was a dangerous driver, you know. So there was always like, it's good, you want to change perception. And Maradona in England, everyone's like, he's a cheat. So I'm like, okay, I think he's pretty good. But yeah, he also cheated. But then let's find out about him. You go, well, he's a street guy. He's like a gangster. So for me, that was like a gangster film. That was me trying to do a Scorsese film. It's like this guy is from the street. He just happens to be brilliant at this one thing, but he will always be the guy from the street. All of his friends are going to be gangsters. They all want him to be up to stuff. He's going to get into drugs, coke, women, all this stuff. But he's a brilliant footballer, but there's going to be a tipping point when he can't do both. Um, The key thing that helped in that one was he was a big Senna fan. Again, he really loved Senna. Nice. Um, as we were negotiating a contract with Diego Maradona, Amy won an Oscar. So while we were still negotiating with him on his Facebook page, it's from him saying, this guy just won an Oscar. He's next one about me. So we're like, okay, we're in with a shot now on that deal, right? <laughs> um, but then, of course, he was really difficult and it was challenging and, and not easy and it took a chunk of time. But on that film, the reason I also agreed to do it was because there was a lot of material that existed that I had seen a little bit of, but nobody had ever been able to clear it. And to clear the footage, you need to find out who owns the footage, who shot the footage, where are all the masters, and get Diego to sign off. And so my producers were able to do all of those things. Like they got the producer, they got the material from the camera people. Some of the material was found outside of Naples in Italy. Some of the material was found in Buenos Aires with his ex-wife who hated Diego. And Diego and his ex-wife were suing each other. And I'm negotiating with both of them. Wow. And then Diego is like crazy and living in Dubai. And we need to get him to sign off. So it was like a really complicated thing. But, you know, I had brilliant 
translators and I was flying to Buenos Aires and I'm flying to Dubai and I'm hanging out in Naples and you don't know if you're dealing with a Camorra and gangsters at certain points, but it was like managing all these people. It was pretty mad and exciting, but um, we managed to do the deal. And then knowing this footage existed, started working with the footage. And again, it was a similar thing to Senna. We had a very long cut. that was like three hours long, three and a half hours long. I screened it. I screened the films a lot to people as they go. And, and I have to say, the screening went down really badly. You know, there's a one point when we're just like, everyone's like, this just doesn't work. He is not Senna. He's not Amy. And I'm like, but that's okay. He's a different character. They're not all the same people. Human beings are different. It's a very different journey. So he's quite unlikable in a way, but mm-hmm. that's who he is. And the film has to be true to him. So we did the screening and then my editor and I got in the edit suite the next day and we're like, okay, there's this whole section at the beginning, got to go. So mm. we basically cut 45 minutes out. And that first 45 minutes, which was his whole life experience before he got to Naples, we cut down to five minutes. And that's the mad driving scene that opens the film. That, that came out of the bad screening. And we were like, okay, let's just make it like you're on, you're off your head on coke. And you're driving like crazy, 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 crazy. And we're going to whiz through his life. And it's fun and it's exciting. And he's dancing and he's doing this and he's fighting people and he's getting girls and he's doing and that was his young kind of existence but he's also absolutely brilliant then he gets to naples and the film begins so it became like an extended title sequence and then the film started to work because the story began in naples and sometimes you have to pick your battles with senna and amy it was like trying to tell they died young so it was like telling the whole story within a sort of three-act structure with maradona he was still alive there was so much story that we picked the middle The main A story was Naples. A lot happened before and a lot happened after, but we're not going to dig into all of that. We're going to just pick a section and it's the microcosm kind of for everything else that happened. This was a kind of high point and a low point of his life. And so that was like a big kind of choice and a decision. And then a year or two after we made it, um, maybe a year and a half during COVID, he died. So yeah, then it became like one of the last films made about him. Did he watch the documentary? Did he give you his opinion? Does he have and a he, say in the process? Did he go like, hey, make me look good. Don't make me look bad. <laughs> Does he do that? No, he's a, he was really quite scary at times um, and very difficult and tricky. And we had one moment when I was asking him some tough questions about the child. I mean, he had many children that he did not recognize, right? But yeah. his first son, Diego Jr., I asked him about him and I asked about the woman that he had a relationship with. And he was just like, I'd ask him a question about this kid and he'd give me a really long 20 minute answer about Stem Blatter. And I'd be like, that's great, but that's like, maybe you misunderstood. That's not what I asked you. And I'd ask him again and ask him again. Now, this is how these films are made. He's living in Dubai. I go to his house in Dubai. While I'm interviewing him, I'm sitting here on the floor. He's sitting on his sofa watching football on the television behind me, right? He's not even turning the TV off. He's got a television on and he's just watching it while I'm interviewing. I'm like, this is, this is one of the earlier interviews. So, okay, this is going to be tricky. I'm the sound recordist. I've got a sound recording device on the table as I'm interviewing him. And I end up sitting on the floor to try to get him to interview. So I ask the question in English. My translator, Lena, translates it into Spanish. He answers in Spanish. As he's answering, I have a phone on the table ringing on WhatsApp, Buenos Aires, where I have a translator in Argentina who is listening in because Diego speaks a very particular kind of Argentinian Spanish kind of that he's invented himself. He invented language that has become common parlance in, in, in Argentina. 
So no one really quite knows what he's saying. You have to kind of understand how to translate it. So I had a translator in Buenos Aires who was calling me back on another phone. So as I'm talking to him, I've got an earpiece in and I asked him a question about his son. And there's always a bit of a delay as the translation's coming through in my ear. And he says something and I'm sort of smiling and nodding. And as the translation comes through, he says to me, you've got a real fucking nerve. Wow. And I'm like nodding and smiling. And I realize, oh, he's not joking. So I'm like, what do you mean? He goes, who the hell do you think you are to ask me these questions? Who do you think you are wow. to ask me these questions to my face? And I'm like, right. And there's a very long pause. And then he goes, but for that, I respect you. Because <laughs> most people would be too afraid to ask me these questions. So I'm like, right. So then he answered it. We got our answer. I asked him a few more. And then he got tired. The interview ended. He never spoke to me again. Okay. Now, we had a deal of how many hours of interviews that we had. And we'd done all of our interviews. But I saved one interview up. And my plan was to go away, edit the film, show him the film, go to his house, show him the film, uh, be ready to dodge the bullets, and then interview him again. once Because he's never seen this material. That, that final interview never happened. He left Dubai. He went to Mexico, he went to Belarus, he went to the, Me the uh, World Cup in Russia. His lawyer would say, oh, come to Russia, or come here or come there. I'm like, that's not going to be the best place for him. So, so I never, I never showed him the film. His lawyer was, I don't know how interested they were in seeing the film. Once the film was done and they got, you know, they, everyone got paid. Never heard from anyone again. I flew to Buenos Aires to show him the finished film. I wasn't allowed to see him. So, you know, like Amy, like lots of people, there's wow. a team around that protect these people. And the minute they feel like, okay, you did your bit, the bare minimum, I had nothing. But I also know he's got massive ego and that film was big in Argentina. It was on every channel. It was shown every TV in his room, in every, every room in his house. He had a massive television, always watching football. And the film was on on those channels. I don't know if he could have not watched it. Who knows? But I never heard from them again. That is crazy. Because it's really interesting because you mentioned his son in the documentary at the end. So I would, would love to know what his reaction would be that to that. But here's yeah. my question. As, I'm as you're telling me about the process, it seems like, I don't want to say it, but it seems like he's very, it's very hard to like him as a person. And I want it, and your documentary kind of humanizes him. How does that how does that contradiction work? You're trying to humanize a guy who you're having trouble liking. Yeah, it's a, so so it's a really good question. And I had to separate it. And as you can see, the kind of the proof is in with Senna, I had an antagonist, Alan Prost. I had a character that he was battling. With Amy, there was this kind of machine, there were there was her ex-partner, family members. There was the media. There was someone that she that was picking on her and she had friends. With Diego, I kept looking for that and I kept thinking, I can't find, I don't know who it is. I mean, he argues just with everyone. And yeah. I knew at some point he's going to argue with me. That's just him. He picks a fight. He can pick a fight in a paper bag. He will always fight somebody and claim you betrayed me. So I knew it was going to happen to me. And I couldn't, there wasn't one single person because his journey was like, he would go everywhere and pick a fight and then move on, pick a fight and move on. That's when his trainer, uh, Signorini, said something. And that's when it kind of came into my head in one of the interviews. Ah, that's the whole thing about him. The fight's going on internally. It's him against him. 
So it's Diego against Maradona. It's like the ego, which is Diego Maradona, but then the kid who's Diego, his name is actually Diego Armando Maradona, which would have made it even more complicated if I had three personas, but I decided to simplify it down to two. Mm-hmm. And so my feeling is I'm talking to Maradona, but I'm making a film about Diego. And that was how I kind of, I worked it out. Is like the person I met, and one of the reasons I didn't go into his latter years, he did so many awful things. And I didn't want to try to empathize or sympathize. I just wanted to say he did all this shit. I'm not denying he did all that shit, but I think he was messed up by addiction. And I'm just going to show you how he went from that young, innocent, smiley, brilliant kid who gets taken away from his parents, dumped somewhere, given loads of money, loads of everything. Nobody says no. What do you expect? And in like in Naples in the 80s, which is like one of the toughest places in the world, highest crime rate. It had a gang warfare going on, the gangsters and the drugs there was off the scale. And he's like the most famous person in the world. No one in America knew, but in the rest of the world, he was very famous. You know, he he was like given everything. So of course he lost his mind. So I felt like if I can justify that, at least you can empathize a bit. I'm not going to say he's a wonderful person because like I said, he's a gangster. He's a street guy. He's like, he's tough. He's done bad things. So when he threatened me, I know people, you know, he's chucked bottles at people's heads. I know the stuff that he's got up to. I'm yeah. like, when he says you better watch it, like, oh <laughs> shit. You know, he's not just all mouth. He yeah. is, he did some stuff over the years, some really bad stuff. So yeah, that was the thing that I thought, to be honest to him, I can't make him this lovable rogue. The guy's got a darkness. And I think the film has done well around the world because people feel it's honest to um, someone like him. That's that's just an amazing story. Wow. And I'm going to tell you another subplot, man. That yeah, while please. I'm making that film, it takes so long to do the research. So while I was doing that, I was always like doing documentaries and dramas and documentaries and dramas. So while we were researching Maradona, I went off to Pittsburgh and then I shot a couple of episodes of Mindhunter for David Fincher. Yes, which I saw came that. Off the, I love the show. That came off the back. It was a great show. That came off the back of Amy. He was a big fan of Senna as well. Fincher and Steven Soderbergh really loved Senna. Um, and, and so does um, Brad Pitt. So it's kind of this mad film that I've just like met these movie guys all over the world who loved Senna. So that came off the back of Senna and Amy. So I did a TV drama. And then I went straight into doing... Um, Maradona. How was uh, David Fincher like? What was what working amazing. with him? He's a genius. Yeah, really brilliant. And I just thought it would be really amazing opportunity to do something where I, my job was to kind of like follow on him. He right. did episode one and two, I did three and four. So I have to basically shoot in his style, which I not wouldn't necessarily come normally for me, but it was um it was a great experience. Really, really, really great. Amazing crew and um and cast, but also the script was really strong because it you know, it was about serial killers. And I was like, oh, God, I'm really not interested in doing something gory, but it was all psychological. And this was the link. Amy, for me, was investigating a crime. And Mindhunter was about two people who do audio interviews that investigate crimes. The crimes yeah. have happened. They even know who did it. Yeah. They're just going to figure out psychologically, why did you do it? What made you do it? And I thought when I had my kind of meeting with Fincher, it was basically talking about how I made Amy and I think that made him realize and it was the same principle i'd go there and i did audio interviews and that's what the characters in in mind time to do they do audio interviews to have a record of what happened so that we can learn from it in the future um now that you're like in your in your 50s i think right 
uh, there's like this trend of uh, of creatives and movie directors who are making uh, content of their roots. You know, for example, Steven Spielberg has a movie out about his childhood. Um, there's mm. a movie called Hand of God, which is about Paolo Sorrentino's own uh, childhood growing up. Have you ever considered going back to your roots and trying to make a movie of your upbringing, of your world? Yeah, do you know, it's really funny you say that. So one of the one of the interesting things that I did over lockdown was a, a, a filmmaker called Michael Winterbottom. Do you know who Michael Winterbottom is? Sounds very familiar. He directed um, Road to Guantanamo, co-directed Road to Guantanamo. I have yeah. first film, I think. He, he's, he did a brilliant film called In This World about two boys trying to come from a, a camp in, I think, in Pakistan to get to London. Um, and it follows them. He did um, Wonderland, which is a, one of the best films about London. He's one of those directors, the kind of generation, I'd say, sort of before me. There was Ken Loach, Mike Lee, and Winterbottom slightly later, Danny Boyle. And he's, he's, he's made a lot of films, really, really interesting director. And he, during, he's very prolific. He's mm-hmm. always making stuff, always making stuff. And during lockdown, he contacted me and said, look, I'm going to interview directors and it was called Dark Matter. And it's basically this idea that there, when you look out, there's a lot more in the sky that we can't see than what we can see. So he decided to do this book about the dark matter in kind of filmic terms, like which projects didn't get made. So he interviewed me. And over, I, when I read the book, he interviewed over a week, loads of filmmakers, um, generally British. The idea to say, is there something wrong with the British system? And I mentioned to him my first screenplay, the one that I wrote, which is my did right thing called On the Corner, actually, um, which I wanted to make. But then I ended up doing a warrior, which took me off on another path. So he, we talked about that. And then months later, he got in touch and said, well, if you ever want to make that, let me know. I can help you make it. So that project, which is about kind of the experience of growing up in Hackney at the time, and the, the stuff that happened, including like the kind of shooting that happened at my school and various other things, I have actually been thinking about going back there and, and maybe kind of in the same, the same projects that you've just mentioned, inspired by all the filmmakers now doing their kind of yeah. getting money from Netflix to make their personal stories or whatever. It's like, well, actually, I don't know if I've seen... And also Small Axe, uh, the Steve McQueen yes. um, films made me think maybe it's time for me to do something about that. Um, and so Michael's been on the call quite a few times and I just had to kind of psychologically deal with going back there. I've now, you know, I've lost my, both my parents now, yeah. you know, in the last few years. And so it's one of those things that, you know, you are now a parent and you're grown up, your parents are not around. And so I didn't, I wish I'd made more or recorded my parents or asked the right questions when they were alive to know about our personal family experience. Cause I didn't meet my grandparents, didn't really have a close kind of relationship with family in India. Yeah. New relations here, but we were, it was one of those, we just didn't talk enough about stuff that happened. And, and my wife, for example, has a very kind of detailed history of her family tree. And there's right. very little my kids know about my lot, you know? And so that's one of the kind of sadnesses. I, I feel like I need to do something maybe to also motivate me to do a bit of homework if I can before it's too late but also to talk about that very unusual period of growing up. So mate, that is one thing that I need to pull my finger out and get on and do. Well, what, what questions would you ask your parents? Because uh, I'm always curious to, I, I wonder what it's like to, my parents are still alive, but they're very old. And I wanted to know 
in someone in your position who who is very respectful in their who's respected in their work who found their calling who's who's who has a voice and it's very powerful did you know at this part in at this chapter of your life what is it like did you become more religious after is there more fear in your life more questions that you that are tormenting you or have you just accepted the 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 futility of life that's a good question i wouldn't say i've become more religious i have to say okay. i would say um i'm glad i'm glad that i was brought up with religion i was glad that i have got some sort of faith or spirituality and found my own version of it right. you know i'm not i'm not the most religious person um i don't have a problem with religion i don't but i also have a problem with some of the stuff that people who are religious kind of sure do and do and say and i'm not talking about in distant places i'm talking about closer to home um so it's uh it's a really good question i suppose i am I'm aware of my age, I suppose now. I'm aware of being a parent. I'm aware of of kind of the I'm, I'm aware of friends who have died, you yeah. know, or at this age. And my brother, you know, is not well right now and he's 10 years older. And you just realize, wow, we don't have lots of time, you know, yeah. in this earth. If there isn't another life, and if there is another life, who knows what happens? Um, I feel like I'm I mean, this is kind of good stuff because I feel like I've tried in my own way to always do the right thing and help people and be, you know, help people on the way and teach and share knowledge. Um, but I also am aware that the, my expression of it, I suppose, is how much time does, how much time do you have to create something? Because that's my expression is if I make something, I make a film, that's what I can leave behind. Hopefully that helps people. Hopefully that says something. I generally try to make films about, people that are trying to do the right thing you know it's easier to do stuff that has lots of guns and lots of violence and people go off and do something you go, yeah great get paid a lot and you're like, yeah, but what are you saying about the world what is it you're trying to say you know what does that mean um and i suppose i mean i try to do stuff or pick choices of films that hopefully have some sort of deeper meaning so i'm kind of proud for example amy is taught now on the media studies syllabus all over england and wow. Diego Maradona is taught in Ireland when they compare it to Macbeth and um, in kind of English language and literature. So I like I like the fact that my films are kind of being studied by students um, about how the media treats a woman or whatever. So I think the idea of making something that young people are kind of learning about and writing essays and I get contacted by students all the time saying, oh, I've got my exam coming up, can I ask you some questions? And it's like, I'm proud of that, you know, I'm proud of some of the other stuff. And now it's like, okay, but I'm also aware of like filmmakers can don't retire. You just kind of no, keep going. If you love going. what you do, you just keep yeah. going. And so hopefully I've still got a chunk of time to kind of keep making stuff and to keep challenging myself. Right. Sorry, um, I don't know if that answers your question as a long rambling. I mean, wicked. there is no answer, right? There's no right answer. We're both kind of lost in this big giant universe, right? So Yeah. You're just ahead yeah. of me. <laughs> Yeah. Or, you know, yeah, I guess finding, I mean, it's really interesting. I, I haven't mentioned it. I'm talking to you from New York. Yeah. Right. I'm, I'm here and it's just like been very interesting because that whole kind of COVID period was a, was a weird one. A lot of, a lot of flux, a lot of change, a lot of um, my old partner, my company, 
we've split up. So I'm kind of restarting my own company and doing my own thing. So it's been an interesting kind of turning point, middle age moment of late 40s, early 50s, getting teenage kids and the pressures that come with children growing up, losing your parents, all of that happening at the same time. It's It's been a really interesting kind of period of time, I suppose, life wise. Yeah. Well, I mean, now, I mean, from your answer, now I'm going to see my parents tomorrow and I'm going to ask them questions. Just any Just questions. Just take so, a, a rec- audio recorder and yeah. record their voice. I, I'm going to be honest, it's as it. simple as that. Yeah. I, my mum had cancer and she, she had, and I think this probably goes back to when she was a machinist and she had throat cancer. She never smoked in her life, but she, you know, they had to remove her tongue. It was all quite heavy heavy stuff she couldn't speak she lost the power of speech for a long time she had dementia my mum had lots of mental illness when I was younger so I like I couldn't remember her voice mm. you know I remember yeah. my mum but I don't remember her voice and my sister at some point recorded her years ago and I, I wish I had I wish I'd done something when she still had her memory and her voice and when I heard the the, the audio that my sister recorded my mum's voice was so high-pitched and I'd totally forgotten before she was ill you know so it's just stuff like that like having something for yourself but also something to give to my kids and my kids kids to say that's what your granny sounded like you know because they were very young they don't really remember her you know that's, yeah. that's a part of it I suppose yeah I have a two-month baby now and I'm worried that he might not get to really know my grandparents his grandparents so i guess yeah. i'm gonna i'm gonna do that i'm gonna do what you said i'm gonna film it so that, that helps have them spend yeah. time with the grandson so they get that and i'm sure they're very proud of the fact that you know you've got a baby and all of that that's all good i mean my my mom did spend time my my eldest son not so much my youngest my dad wasn't really around you know he he went he remarried and he went away and lived in india and then he lived in Leicester in the midlands and he didn't really get in touch much and we didn't see him much and you know, that's the other thing is when you realize you're the grown up, you have to make the effort to wow. I yeah. in my family anyway, make the effort to go and see your parents. They're not showing any interest in you. The son becomes a weird, the father. All of that, you know, that's all kind of complicated yeah. shit that wasn't dealt with properly. Um, and still we're still kind of unraveling in our house, I have to say. Wild. Uh my last question would be is what are you working on next? What are you anything really cool coming? our way so i have got a film that's just coming out which is this dance film that i did which is another kind of experiment called creature which i did with this choreographer called akram khan who's amazing and so he choreographed this show which didn't happen because of covid and so i um normally my films you know on average a movie takes like seven years to make yeah from coming of an idea to it coming out seven years my features typically on average have been four or five years maybe three years if I'm lucky. Yeah. Um, so this one I shot in 10 days and we edited it in three weeks and we made, basically we made a movie in a couple of months and it was great. <laughs> it was just like, he had this show. I went along, I saw rehearsal. I was like, I don't even know where this is going. I don't know what it's about, but I think it's really cinematic. And I got a crew together and we, and we, we, we put this team together. We had a producer and kind of amazing ballet dancers, right? I've never been to the ballet. And it was just like, I don't know anything in this universe, but I feel like there's a story that I can do. So that film's coming out in the UK. Hopefully it'll come out in the US and Canada um, later this year. Um, and then I am working on a project which came out of all of the stuff, partly we've been talking about just at the end of this conversation, yeah. to make a kind of personal film about 
what the hell is going on in the world with like the shift to the kind of far right authoritarians everywhere you know for the first time in my life i'm sitting there going i love london but i don't like the government we got and mm. i feel like it's not going to be long before they come for us if they stay in power and they keep doing what they're doing so i've had conversations with my family and my friends like if they come for us where do we go where do we go and i talk to my friends in brazil they're like i'm the same i've got to if bolsonaro stays on or if he's you know i've got to go india i've got friends who are scared to talk to me in india because of what modi's doing right they're like i can't even that my oldest friends they can't even they're too scared to talk to me on whatsapp they're too scared to do a zoom call i don't feel safe going there right now so there's this weird stuff going on in the world what's been happening in the us what's been happening in europe and in the uk so i'm working on a project which is about the state of things the state of play and where we're at and it's a documentary but it's also kind of got a, it's a hybrid thing it's got an element of drama in it so i'm i'm kind of writing it whilst we're cutting it it's a bit mad um, i don't know if it's i mean it's one of those films where like no one really knows what it's going to be but i and i feel like it could be kind of another real changing the game if i get it right 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 you know? or a massive heroic failure but i'm going to give it a go um so that's that's the main thing that i'm working on right now awesome i'm so excited i can't wait to see that um thank you so much for doing this this was probably of such a great conversation and really really inspiring uh i'm going to press the stop record now and you're going to cut it up it's a long rambling <laughs> chat what do you normally do i'm just going to keep it as is i'm going to oh really it. yeah okay. let's, let's just keep it natural i don't as you, look i'm in my room i don't have the funds or the time energy to <laughs> edit this and make it like anything sp special you know just keep it raw hopefully it helps well, thanks people for, thanks for asking and for chasing man well done.